This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome, I'm Jake Cantor. On this episode, we rummage through the drawers of the BBC White Paper and pull out the themes that matter to you. In the spotlight, BBC One, BBC Studios and Independence. Also on the show, how Kevin Ligo plans to give ITV a clearer identity, plus an interview with the series editor of Peston on Sunday. Finally, we preview two big new BBC One dramas, find out if it's worth watching Love, Nina and Russell T Davis's adaptation of A Midsummer Night's Dream. That's all coming up on Talking TV from Broadcast. In the studio this week, a trio of guests, Broadcast Editor Chris Curtis, Barcroft Media Boss Sam Barcroft and Hannah Ganajay-Stewart, Broadcast Senior Reporter. Morning, guys. Hi, Jake. Hello. Hi. Welcome. Morning. So, Sam, tell us what you've got coming up at Barcroft Media. Well, there's lots of uh, US series, actually, for us at the moment. We just announced Outsiders for MTV, which is part of their new raft of uh, The New World under Sean Atkins, which we're very excited about, which is a documentary series for them, and um, various other things in America, mostly, at the moment, and they're keeping us uh, happily busy. Okay, so only one place to start, and that's with the BBC White Paper on Charter Renewal. Now that the dust has settled on John Whittingdale's tome, Key battlegrounds have emerged for the BBC as it looks to secure its future for the next 11 years. The corporation is at loggerheads with the government over the distinctiveness of BBC One and has significant concerns that Ofcom will be asked to judge the channel's performance within parameters set by the government. Uh, The BBC also has fears that its independence will be threatened by a unitary board that will contain six government-appointed directors. Uh, Instead, the BBC would prefer a PLC model where the chairman appoints the non-executive team. Finally, the green light for BBC Studios came at a price. The production division will have to tender out the large majority of its shows by the end of 2027. Uh, There also remains lingering market concerns that BBC Studios will break fair trading rules. Phew. Shall we start with BBC One? Tony Hall and John Wittingdale are said to have had sort of fundamental disagreements about the uh, channel and its health and its distinctiveness. Hannah, you spoke to Charlotte Moore yes. this week. What's the beef? I think she feels that they've been working on distinctiveness forever and that it's something that she's you know, made core to the channel. And so I think she's a little bit perplexed as to what the issue remains. I don't think she's um, adverse to working to improve things. Um, but I think she, you know, she's said numerous times, hasn't she, that she feels the channel's distinct and she's said that she doesn't recognise these sort of complaints about it in the past. What more can I do, I think, is probably the, was the kind of undercurrent of what she was saying. But she, she was, you know, up for more scrutiny and Ofcom kind of having a look at what she was doing and, and sort of judging it if, if they wanted to. So, yeah, I think she, uh, she'll, she'll carry on. She, to... uh, one, of the, one of the issues raised in the white paper was around uh, long-running returning series, which she made a reasonable point to you about. Yeah, that they were value for money and that the, you know, and that the audience really likes them and they, they stay in the schedule because they're watched and they're appreciated. And, you know, they build the schedule, don't they? They give it some kind of framework that people recognise, people know where they're going, they go to those shows and they kind of, you know, there's new stuff around them. So I think she feels that they're part of the structure. I don't think it's an unfair question to raise. However, you know, people want to see things freshened up. They want to, you know, see things moving on. And um, so it's fair enough to have the question out there, isn't it? I don't think it's surprising that BBC One was so central to the white paper. There's an enormous amount of public money that goes into that channel. And out of all the channels, it was fairly likely, wasn't it, that BBC One was going to be concentrated on. So I don't think it's a massive surprise. Um, it will The devil will be in the detail in terms of how that's 
measured and what metrics are used. Chris, fair questions in the white paper or did they have a slightly insidious tone? I think the question of distinctness is a perfectly reasonable one. I think who's asking that question and who's judging distinctiveness is a really important point. This week, I chatted briefly about the issue to David Liderman and Kevin Ligo. Now, those individuals are steeped in television. They understand the nuances of things. You know, Kevin effectively running programming on ITV, BBC One's biggest rival. Does he have an agenda, a bias because of that? Well, it's Kevin Ligo. He doesn't hate the BBC. He's not trying to rip up the BBC. He made some interesting points about returning series and, you know, do we need to have 30, 40 weeks a year of casualty and um, country farm? Perfectly reasonable discussion. David Lidham was very measured about it all. I think if you have proper nuanced debates about it, good. If the measure of the way that distinctiveness is characterised and measured is um, by informed people who understand telly, fine, no problem with that. If it's sort of handed down from government and if the measure of distinctiveness is that the BBC shouldn't just shouldn't be like other broadcasters, then you get into very tricky territory. I wrote this week that Bake Off, everyone loves Bake Off, and it was cited many times as a great example of distinctiveness. It's a cookery elimination format. I mean, at the point of commission, there's nothing terribly distinctive about it. Line of Duty is a crime drama. Well, there's plenty of that on commercial TV elsewhere. So you have to be really careful it doesn't become a simple binary conversation. What have you made of this debate, Sam? I think it's really important. I've worked across multiple parts of the media landscape over the last 20 years, and I think uh, the BBC probably stands alone in being the one thing that is universally pretty much loved by the majority of Brits and most people around the rest of the world. And I think everybody forgets the audience in this. People don't just love the BBC because it does the same things as ITV or Channel 4. They love it for the way that BBC do it and for the voice of the BBC and for the comfort of trusting the brand and its values. And I think a lot of this has been reined in because everybody has suddenly realised that the public won't stand for um, more than a certain amount of meddling. Do you, do you think there's a genuine threat to independence? Yeah, absolutely, because I know... And do you think that's posed by the, the makeup of this board that, that is being proposed <sighs> at the moment? I think it's you've just got to be careful because the public will smell a rat very, very quickly if they feel there's government or outside influence on the BBC beyond a certain point. And so everybody's just got to calm down a little. And when a big organisation has been doing something very well for a very long time, it doesn't make a great deal of sense to radically move it. And you're a producer. What, what do you make of um, the BBC Studios' uh, sort of vault face, I, I guess, in, in the fact that they're going to have to now tender out all, sh- all shows, uh, apart from those that uh, where it's sort of genuinely in the public interest that they remain produced in-house? I think that's a red herring. <laughs> um, because are BBC going to say to a small indie, hey, would you like to make Strictly Come Dancing, when for the first time ever they've actually got to make money out of their shows um, as producers in-house? absolutely no chance in hell they're going to give away nothing unless they are completely pressured to do it because actually they've been told they've got to make money not give it away so um it just means there'll be less in-house on the channels and i feel very sorry for in-house producers i've been up to see numbers of different bbc people actually at the request of the bbc to talk to them about commercializing their departments and when you sit with the songs of praise team and talk to them about how they can think commercially about what they're doing you do take a little breath and you do think is this very clever from a people point of view it's gonna 
be very difficult not to get rid of a lot of people at the BBC now, given these changes. And I think that's the major change we'll see at the BBC in the next couple of years. I wouldn't be surprised if a third to a half of their production staff are out of work within a year or two. It's going to be tough, isn't it, Chris? Yeah, yeah, completely. I, I think Sam's spot on there. He's got about 2,000 people work there at the moment. I could easily see three or four years from now, there being a 1,000 people uh, working in-house production at the BBC. It's going to be a painful process getting BBC production from where it is now, or BBC Studios as it finally is now, to where they want it to be. There are going to be regulatory hurdles to overcome uh, in terms of reassuring the market about subsidy, public money subsidy, and that's going to be difficult. And then there's the cultural change required within the organisation as well as the operational change. So it's not just reduction in headcount, which is coming, and that's going to be pretty challenging to manage and, you know, you've got to think about staff morale and all that. But then operationally, as Sam makes a really good point, about it's just a different way of, of thinking. And the idea that you can just introduce an indie mentality to the BBC, that is not a flick of the switch and it's a bloody big challenge okay just finally hannah where where next on all this we have numerous parliamentary debates to go through to kind of see what parts of this white paper actually survive the cut i suppose um i think whittingdale's going to come under some uh fire from various parts of the bbc and the public to push all of this forward i suspect there'll be some debates around negotiations to come all right let's move on next up kevin ligo's itv master plan uh the director of television told broadcast this week that he wants to evolve entertainment by reinvigorating shows like the x factor and potentially play more of the genre midweek Week. Uh, with his senior non-scripted team now in place, LIGO is also on a mission to find a schedule building hit akin to MasterChef uh, that can play before the 9pm watershed. Chris, you interviewed Mr LIGO? I did. Was he on good form? As ever. You always get good value, don't you, with Kevin. Uh, he spoke a lot of sense. It wasn't radical, but it probably doesn't need to be. He's got a head of factual entertainment, a head of comedy entertainment and a head of entertainment. You know, there's a common theme there. It's the E word. You know, he wants the, the I think the channel to feel uh, a bit more uplifting. He said he, he's interested in in that. You know, they, they haven't got enough money to play drama at 9pm every night of the week. Of course, he's going to be interested. Factual has struggled. Sue Murphy is the woman tasked with a lot of this at, at sort of 8pm, finding those things that can really give ITV a sense of continuity, a sense of identity. It's going to be risky. He was talking about big bets. Well, you know, you order an eight-part series, you promote it really hard, episode one doesn't go terribly well, you're staring down the barrel then of many weeks of, of, of challenge. Previously, I get the impression they were trying one, two, three-parters to try and find something that would hit that they could then expand. Kevin's talking about, I think, sticking to your gut instinct and going a bit harder from the from the outset. It's going to be, it's a big challenge, but, um, you know, it's an exciting time for ITV. Hasn't it felt like ITV's looking for a sort of schedule building, returnable factual series format for since the dawn of time? You know, it's, it was one of the major thing, hallmarks of Peter Fincham's time and, and they're still trying to crack that egg, aren't they? We have to remember this, the disruption that's going on around all our lives in terms of the technology revolution that's happening at the moment. And I don't think it's going to be easy for any broadcasters moving forward to to look at hero channels and, and try and raise overall audience. I just think it's a, a declining market and everybody has to realise that falling numbers are the new normal. I think most people do realise that and that it's like in any media business at the moment, finding a hit is basically um, gold mining in a in a virgin 
paradise of, of, of nothingness. And, and if you're very lucky to get a bake off, um, good on you, you know, but that could have been any channel that got bake off and, and it was the beeb and well done then. But I think, uh, they, they're going to be very few and far between. And I've seen a couple of really interesting speeches, people saying that the, the super format age is over essentially and there isn't going to be another master chef or bake-off necessarily and um and therefore i i think people need to i admire itv going back to core itv is all about entertainment and i think channels all over the world have recognized that going back to their main core values is what the audience want them to do however i think um everybody has to re be pragmatic and honest with themselves about the likelihood of um, lightning striking twice or three times really and Hannah, they've got a job on The Voice, haven't they, in terms of moving that over and, and making sure that it's strong? Taking it on, yeah. It's it's going to be difficult. I mean, entertainment is what they are good at and what they want to do. So I think they'll be able to do it. But yeah, it's going to be a, it's certainly a tricky transfer, isn't it, from one channel to the other. There's a bit of debate internally, I think, about whether she is purely doing existing programmes, whether she's going to be commissioning new shows as well but certainly she is fully uh, both barrels uh, working on reinvigorating X Factor and launching The Voice landing The Voice with a bang I'd be amazed if they don't throw money at The they Voice they are that's what I've heard they are yeah. going to have some serious judges I, I would have thought they're going to ramp it up now look it, it, it was wobbling a bit towards the end of its run on the BBC They've got it for three years. They've got the voice kids as well. Again, that's a big bet. They are going to be doing their absolute damnedest. And Shoe Green's got you know good expertise um, in in running those big Saturday night night beasts. Um, you know who knows who they're going to have hosting, what they're going to do on on, on that front. But they will be doing their damnedest to make this thing launch with a bang. Finally, our commission of the fortnight, uh, Talking TV's accolade goes to Dragonfly's new Channel 4 show, The Trial. Uh, for the five-part series, the Endemol Shine Group Indie will blend documentary and drama by dissecting a fictional crime in forensic detail. Uh, Practising lawyers and a judge will present an as-real trial in front of a jury who uh, must reach a guilty or not guilty judgment. Hannah, you've got a legal background. <laughs> it sounds good. I mean, it sounds like posh Judge Rinder a little bit. I don't know. It's kind of like, I think it will go down well. I mean, uh, it'll be interesting. We can't have cameras in courts in this country. So it's one way of uh, giving people an insight into the wheels of justice, isn't it? Where uh, elsewhere we can't do that. So, yeah, it'll be interesting. Sam, I'll, will you I'll be watching? It. I will, because I think um, Channel 4's whole kind of let's find really amazing things that we can't really film like the SAS or inside courts or whatever and then let's just recreate them and make them a bit more tele-friendly they're quite into that I think as a way of commissioning at the moment and um, having been in courtrooms it is the ultimate kind of real life drama isn't it and uh, and so if it's done well as these things generally are by Channel 4 I'm sure it'll be successful whether it'll return again and again I don't know it does feel like a, a big one series kind of uh, phenomenon I think Five parts is probably about right. You sort of think, I, I can't believe this hasn't been done properly before. Well, I wonder, yeah. I'd be interested to see what the tone is. What's the crime, for example? So mm. Windfall made a, a thing for Channel 4 murder trial uh, not that long ago that was a pure doc uh, around a real case, not a fictional case. And that was gripping because, you know, there's a did he, didn't he, guilt, you know, innocent, guilty kind of thing, but but also the mechanism of the of, of the court. So you're getting lots of similar things there. That's real, and it's done in a dock way. I wonder what the crime will be and what the tone is on this case, whether they'll play it serious and, and, and try and do it at the more factual end of things or whether they might sort of make it 
uh, slightly softer and, and, and have a bit more, uh, you know, entertainment. Choosing the crime in itself will slightly set the tone of the of the show. But, Absolutely. Um, uh, you know, interesting. Uh, Simon Dixon is the the you know the guy's just sort of that, that kind of interesting stuff for Channel Four in the past. So it'd be interesting to see what it, what, what it comes out as. And just finally, Chris, broadcast reported this week that uh, former BBC Two controller Kim Schillinglaw is uh, uh, in talks over a job at Endemol Shrine Group, which might involve Dragonfly, which is making this show. Yeah, I mean, so Dragonfly is in need of a new boss. They've got talented people working there. They uh, Mark Raphael's leaving to set up his indie with David Glover. So they're in need of a new creative leader. Kim's specialist factual background would seem to to, to tally quite nicely. They're they're talking uh, dragonfly plus extras is the kind of the description. Some maybe some other responsibilities across other factual producers that Endemol Shine owns. Darlow Smithson would be the the obvious one. I think it's a distinct possibility. There's other. I think she's got other options, and and she's just starting to sort of weigh up her. Uh, Early way, days. Yeah, so. I think so. But so, uh, watch this space. Watch this space. Those are your headlines for this week. Thanks to Chris, Hannah, and Sam. Up next, as one of the biggest names in TV news, Robert Peston is more used to breaking rather than making the headlines. Uh, but that's exactly what happened when he was involved in a now famous tug of war between the BBC and ITV. The deal breaker? Well, that was the promise of his own Sunday morning politics show on ITV, which has now launched as Peston on Sunday. Shiver's 10-part series landed in confident fashion this month, winning the plaudits of critics and Peston's fellow lobby hacks. Its lighter touch and no-tie policy are all overseen by Vicky Flind, who was poached from BBC One's This Week to series edit the show. She'll reveal all about the launch in a moment, but first, here's Peston grilling Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn about his upbringing. Some people say you don't understand the middle classes. Just by chance, I've seen the rather lovely house you grew up in, you tree... Manor, it's it's a it's a wonderful house uh, with huge huge gardens. I think uh, whoever owns it now has spent a lot more money well, on it than my mum or dad ever it, were able it, to. Actually. Even so, I mean, it was a pretty nice place to, nice place to 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 grow up. It was. Do you, I want to, very simple question. Do you think of yourself as middle class? Oh God, I don't know. Listen, I live in my own house. Well, it's it's a shared ownership with a bank. Actually, it's called <laughs> it's called a mortgage these days. That old gold. It's quite, mm. quite telling, isn't it? <laughs> um, so you must be busy preparing for episode three now then? Yep, we're um, hoping to get a big name. We can't quite confirm it, but um, we've had two big politicians to start off with, George Osborne and Jeremy Corbyn. So we've got to try and keep that level up. So we're working hard. Set the bar high. Yeah, and we're, <laughs> we, we hope to match it this weekend. So uh, we're recording on a Thursday. Where are you in the process of making the show right now? Well, we're trying to firm up our main guests. So um, it's always good the week before to have an idea of who you want. We've got a couple of presenter friends, Ed Balls, um, who'll be doing one of his first interviews since losing at the election. And he'll be sitting alongside Esther McVeigh. So we've got those two firmed up. And then we've got David Baddiel coming on at the end of the show. And we're going to try something slightly different this week. Rather than the book club, we're going to do have a comic on and talk about something he's interested in and sort of finish the show in a slightly different way. So we're a little bit nervous about that, but um, we're attempting to be quite brave with what we do. Um, but it helps to have a big name just to sort of cement the show. Yeah, build around, I guess. Build around, um, yeah. So... 
could you take us back to the beginning? Because there was a competitive tender, wasn't there, that, that ITV did. And Shiver, I think, pipped ITM Productions to the post. When did you get involved? And when did the, you know, the idea and, and uh, the, the sort of format and, and feel of the show yeah. come together? I came in sort of pretty early. So once um, I've known Robert for a few years back because um, we both worked at the BBC once he made the jump to ITV and um, we knew that part of the deal was going to be to launch this new Sunday show, we had a chat about it and he asked me sort of quite casually if I'd be interested. And I began, I suppose, at that point to think about it. And then it became more of a reality. I'd met some of the senior people at ITV, somebody I used to work with many years ago, which, which I think helped. And then it wasn't it, Tom Giles, was it? It wasn't Tom Giles, <laughs> but I know Tom Giles as well. And then it became pretty clear that um, it was going to be ITN Productions or, or Shiver. And so I, I spoke to both of them, um, and Robert and I kept on talking, and it ended up, which I was very pleased with, with Shiver and Alex Gardner. And then the sort of process took off from there. And we've had a pretty intense period because we've put it all together in about eight weeks, and that's from scratch, really building a team. Is that ideal? It's not ideal, but I think we realise that politics is such fun at the moment and there's such big stories going on that if we didn't get on air pre-referendum, we'd be missing the story, so we'd be mad. So in a way, I think we took some risks to sort of push ourselves to get ready in time um, and just because the stories were so good and in the end... You know, if you've got good stories, you've got a good chance of making a decent programme. So I think we'd have been mad not to try and get on air when we did, which was the week after the local and um, Welsh and Scottish elections. So was that at the core of it, really, that 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 ambition to, to, to land stories? I mean, it's clearly something that Robert thrives on. You can see that in his own reporting. Yeah, it's part of it. I think I think the idea is to try and create a lively, engaging, political sort of Sunday morning magazine show. We're keen to get people involved in politics, keen to get people watching who aren't necessarily watching, and just to do a programme which people find watchable and fun. And, you know, we take politics very seriously, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. And, and that's our sort of aim, really. Was that a sort of overarching principle when you um, started this process of developing the show? I think the overarching principle was I knew that with Robert, I was working with a huge talent. You know, he is the show. He's at the heart of the show. And we had to build a show around his character and what he's good at. And he's got quite, quite a quirky personality. And really, we wanted the programme to fit him rather than to try and fit him into some predetermined structure or, or format. And it's got quite a relaxed feel, hasn't it? Was that part of that intention? Definitely. To, to that? I mean, I think, look, there's lots of very, very good shows out there, political shows and good shows on Sunday morning that are very established. And I sort of thought, my view was, and I think Robert's was, we had to try and do something slightly different because what's being done is being done very well. And we sort of thought, yeah, just I think Robert's style is slightly more relaxed. You know, he's famous for his non-tying sort of um, interviews, <laughs> Was that quite early conversation? I mean, because the press do make a, a reasonable amount about that sort of sartorial approach. Yeah. <laughs> Was that always in your thinking? Um, only in that it's Robert, really. So, 
all the way along, my, my view always when I've worked with presenters is to try and, you know, work with their qualities and work with who they are and not try and sort of turn them into something they're not. And Robert is, you know, quite a relaxed, a little bit scruffy, um, <laughs> you know, brilliant journalist. Have you had resistance from politicians to, to not wearing a tie? No, I'm sure, well, um, I'm sure we'll fail. Uh, Nigel Farage, who I've, I've come across many times, you know, throughout my career, I knew he would always keep his tie on. And I respect that. And it doesn't matter that much. We, we, we sort of tell them what our style is. If they want to fit in with that style or, you know, we're, we're not going to push it too hard. But that, that's our style and the programme style. We'll let the politicians know and then they so can George make their Orwell own So was quite happy to, to go tireless. <laughs> he, was, he was very happy to go tireless. <laughs> and there are obvious comparisons with Andrew Marr. I mean, that, that's been well trailed in the press. Do you watch Andrew Marr before it goes out to check if there's any headlines that you need to be aware of? I've, I've come from, I've spent my life in the BBC, so I'm, I'm a big fan of the Andrew Marr show and I've always watched the Andrew Marr show and we'd be mad not to, to watch, you know, it goes on an hour before us, so they're not competitors, they're on before us. Um, we'd be crazy not to watch it and to make sure, you know, if there are good lines out of it, we'll put them to our guests. We'll sort of, our sort of view is that we're keen to use, you know, we're keen to move stories on, and we'll use whatever, you know, wherever the story is, we'll sort of use it. If it's on the Andrew Marr show, we'll use it. If it's online, we'll use it. If it's on Twitter, we'll use it. If it's on Sky, if it's on Murnahan, sort of, you know, if it's the story, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll use the material. You don't feel precious about that. At Not all. at all. Not <laughs> at all. No. And uh, you've launched with, uh, well, the first show got 160,000 viewers. That's leapt quite significantly to 300,000 for the second episode. Yeah. What have you made of the response? Yeah, I think the re I think we're very aware that we're entering a very competitive market. We're bringing this style of political show back to ITV on a Sunday morning. So we're building from nothing. So we've got to be quite realistic about, you know, where we can get and the fact that it might take us a bit of time. So there's no inheritance. Um, you know, we've got to start from scratch. But I'm pretty pleased. I think we've got a pretty positive response, you know, um, from the press, um, from audience, um, and just generally, I feel it's been quite positively received. And I think we've just got to be patient. And certainly the message our ITV bosses give us, which is very nice, is that, you know, they're going to be patient as well. They think there's space out there for a show like this. And, you know, if we can, of course, we want to build on the viewers. Um, and I, I think we can, but we've got to be, just got to be realistic um, and patient and also keep, if we get the good guests already, we've had a huge amount of pick up and pick up in the newspapers, pick up, you know, on social media. And as long as we're making news and making sort of waves, I think, yeah. That reputation will grow. Yeah. Is there, is there an ideal figure you have in mind? or no. What, I guess, perhaps I could rephrase that question. Mm. Is, there, is there a... Um, is there a sort of definition of success or measure of success that ITV has in mind? I, look, I don't, I, I don't have a definition of success. I think we know I've come from working on this week on BBC One with Andrew Neil, which I set up with Jamie Donald 13 or nearly 14 years ago. And we started there, you know, again, thinking we'd, we'd have a year or two years. 
never imagining that sort of 13 years later the programme would still be going and that it'd it'd build a big audience and a loyal audience and that it's got a big character. So I think it's it's impossible to sort of define, you know, um, what success is. And I don't think it's my job. I think I keep focused on producing and creating the best possible show I can and I sort of leave it to others to judge you know whether it's a success or but presumably failure. you'd be quite happy if uh, you had a similar situation to this oh, week whereas be, yeah, of course. And I think, it becomes more than a decade old yeah look I think that's the aim I think you know certainly I am and I think Robert is we're building for the long term that is the aim is that it is just the to be aim. Clear, yeah. yeah that yeah. is the aim I think we 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 would like this show to you know be be around in a few years time so when when we look back on this but you'd, you'd like it to be sort of become one of those pillars of the you know the itv current affairs lineup i think we'd like sunday morning politics to be back on itv for the long term that's my aim and and hopefully it's the aim of others and um tell us about what's coming up this year so you you're doing you're doing 10 part run now and how will that play so we're yeah. running up to the summer break we'll come off I think around July the 10th and then we're back on for the sort of party conference scene and then we run up till Christmas and then I'm not sure what happens after that but um that's as far as in my my head I'm planning but uh, and I assume we yeah it? and then then I assume we'll be back back the following term as well well uh, we hope you are we wish you all the best with this uh, the rest of the series uh Pesson on Sunday continues this weekend at 10 a.m on ITV Previews time now. Back with me are Chris Curtis, Sam Barcroft and Hannah Ganajay-Stewart. First on the agenda is BBC One's adaptation of A Midsummer Night's Dream from former Doctor Who writer Russell T Davis. Uh, Made to mark the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death, in this clip, an amateur theatre group rehearse in the woods, but Bottom the Weaver has a few compliance issues. Uh, Mistress Quince, there are things in this comedy of Pyramus and Thisbe that will never please. First, Pyramus must draw a sword to kill himself, which you ladies cannot abide. How wants you that? By our lake in a parlour sphere. I believe we must leave the killing out when all is done. Not a whit. I have a device to make all well. Write me a prologue oh. and let the prologue seem to say we will do no harm with our swords and that Pyramus is not killed indeed. And, for the more better assurance, tell them that I, Pyramus, am not Pyramus, but Bottom the Weaver. This will put them out of fear. I thought Matt Lucas was just <laughs> joyful. In I this. thought Matt Lucas was brilliant in this yeah. as well. Thank God he was in it, actually. He kind of <laughs> did make it, I think. Wasn't Mac Lucas just actually on secondment from Little Britain? Probably. Yeah, he, it was, <laughs> it was it sort was, of a culmination like, of all his characters yeah. in Little Britain. Yeah. But I, I love that, though. <laughs> uh, it was much ado about nothing, though, wasn't it? You know, what a waste of money. I'm not being funny. <laughs> like, such a like lot of is. money. Such a lot of money on that. Don't production. hold back, Sam. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not here to make up the spaces. But, I mean, honestly... Um, Russell T. Davis, Doctor, trying to turn Shakespeare into Doctor Who meets, you know, Kateness meets um, a load of other things. I mean, Shakespeare is just like Latin, isn't it? It was probably useful a few hundred years ago, but actually we've all moved on a lot and built on that and we have a language that we all understand. I literally sat there thinking, I've just 
listened to 20 minutes of people talking. I have no idea what anybody is doing here or what anybody is saying. It was a visual masterpiece, brilliant, kind of lovely uh, scenes, lots of imaginative kind of settings and clever ways of getting around things. But um, honestly, other than um, the kind of people who love pure arts and classic arts, who gives a monkeys? Nobody is going to watch that for an hour and a half and really love it, apart from a few people that will be then toddling off to the Royal Opera House to spend 150 <laughs> quid to watch some fat bloke sing. So, I love it. I love. I love it when we uh, when we have a bit of feistiness. Chris, I uh, don't agree with Mr. Barcroft. <laughs> Come on, as a man of the people. I thought it was fantastic, absolutely fantastic. I, I agree. I mean, visually, it slaps you in the face from the beginning and, and, the, and, the, and the setting and the kind of, there's sort of half Nazis, half stormtroopers. You, you're not quite sure, is it, the, is it the past, is it the future? There's really good. And there is that you can feel the Doctor Who influence on this massively. I mean, look, I guess I'm slightly, I mean, I'm, I love Midsummer Night's Dream. I think it's hilarious. You know, the character of Bottom, like we mentioned earlier, is a sort of a gimme for a really good comic actor. I thought it was, you know, exactly all those things we talked about. Distinctive. I don't think any other broadcaster would have done it. I, 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 compl- agree. <laughs> I, I think. Listen, I think Sam's point of view is. I mean, the, the, the reality is we're reviewing shows and we're having our subjective opinions about them. I, I thought this was absolutely a great way of updating Shakespeare. It was visually uh, in, incredible. Um, the, the performances were were good. It, it, I mean, thematically, Midsummer Night's Dream is quite an interesting play. There are all sorts of, you know, it's a comedy with some pretty dark stuff going it's on in there. You know, gender relations and um, all, all sorts of things. I couldn't recommend it highly enough. Hannah, are you somewhere in between? or um, No, I think I'm kind of predominantly with Chris in the sense that the idea of this is it's part of the BBC's Shakespeare season. They're celebrating the death of the Bard 400 years to last month, I think. And, you know, this is access to content and ideas and culture that maybe people don't access other ways. And I think it did that well. It's not going to be for everyone. Some people are going to feel lost. They're going to switch over, whatever. But, I mean, if it does draw you in, it's done a job, hasn't it? And that's what the BBC's there to do. So I think it did that well. I think, it's, I think it, it summarises Tony Hall's approach to the BBC, which is that uh, the BBC is um, a PSB and it needs to um, educate and inform people more than entertain them. And, and I think that that is you know, very much his focus. And I think we'll see more projects like this of trying to get classical arts onto BBC One. And look, there's no bad thing. I think at least it starts conversations and, and means that people, as you say, get access to um, important cultural history. OK. A Midsummer Night's Dream is made by BBC Wales and will air later this year. Up next is Love, Nina, Nick Hornby's adaptation of Nina Stibbe's best-selling book. Uh, The story centres on Lester girl Nina, who moves to London in 1982 to care for the children of the editor of a London literary review. Uh, Here, Nina is interviewed for the job by the children. I don't know anything about football. You'll have to learn. And you have to say a team. Well, I come from Leicester, so um, I suppose I'll have to say Leicester City. Ugh. What? Joe hates Lester. I don't think anybody hated Lester. Joe does. I do. Well, why? I hate everything about them. Their players, their stadium, their shirts. Oh, dear. Well, um, if they win, I won't cheer. How about that? No good. Mom! Hang on. Well? Leicester City supporter. I told you not to talk about football. I didn't know how to get out of it. Well, too late now. Sort of unintentionally salient. 
that clip, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a good time. <laughs> yeah. What do we make of this, guys? I'm happy to go first. <laughs> I, I, as ever, put my oar in. Um, I went to school in Camden in the 80s, and so I loved seeing the kind of bit of retro, kind of uh, old school tellies and cars and everything. And I think there'll be a lot of 80s kind of uh, drama throwback in the UK because it's been doing so well in the US and especially for Netflix. Um, I thought it was warm. I thought it was fine. I, I just, I could see whether they were trying to go with it, which was something quirky and a little bit cheeky and a little bit uh, warm and sentimental but considering the talent Nick Hornby involved and um, Helen Bonham Carter I felt that um, I was expecting a little more if mm. I was honest I think it was fairly well executed and I thought there were some nice moments in there but it wasn't something I was necessarily completely gripped by but it's a series so it may well grow and I thought the characters were interesting. How do you seem to agree? You're yeah, nodding your head. Yeah, I was thinking, when's this going to get started? A little bit, if I'm honest. I felt a, kind of a little bit lost in it. I actually wasn't entirely aware of, aware of what, when it was set, <laughs> to begin with. I was like, I could tell it was in the past. I couldn't tell entirely when, but maybe that's because it's just You're a bit predates me. me. Just yeah, yeah, by yeah. like a year. <laughs> um, like Sam says, I could sort of see where it was trying to go, but I didn't really feel like it quite got there in, in that one episode that I saw, if I'm honest. Chris, you were sort of in, you were talking about the tone of it. Yeah, I, I must have got out of the bed the right side this morning. I like, I like, you know, I liked it. It was quirky and fun. I, um, one of the things I liked about it, it's quite a slightly strange point, it was a half hour. It, I don't think it was trying to be anything more than it was. In my mind, I watched it and I thought it's kind of a, a kind of comedy of manners. It's about social class, really. And it's slightly poking fun at the, the kind of North, grim up North London uh, set and uh, more power to it for that. Uh, do you have your tin tomatoes or real tomatoes, tinned rice pudding or real... You know, it was kind of trying to poke fun at, at snobbery and inverse snobbery and all sorts of... Uh, of different things and I enjoyed it it was a very pleasant uh, witty sort of half hour I take on board what the guys are saying if you ask w what happens in the first episode barely anything happens she gets a job as a nanny I'm not, it's not a spoiler because it's not a plot driven uh, show but I, I enjoyed it I thought it was fun and um, I'll go back for episode two Sam not, not massively impressed by our previews this week <laughs> I just think that um, the biggest challenge we have in television at the moment is competing with bigger ambition from outside. And I think that that show will probably do a good number on BBC One. I think it's got lots of elements that will add up um, to, to a decent audience. But I think there's a real danger in the lack of ambition. And I must say that was the one good thing about A Midsummer Night's Dream was at least it was a big swing. you know. And I do think that the BBC especially, whether it's distinctiveness, whether it's um, diversity, has to take more big swings. It just does in order to remain on point and to remain as successful as it has been recently. Okay, Love Nina is made by Seesaw. It starts tonight, which is Friday the 20th of May at 9pm on BBC One. And time to close the book on this edition of Talking TV. Thanks to my guests, Vicky Flind, Sam Barcroft, Chris Curtis and Hannah Ganajay-Stewart. Uh, thanks also to you lot for listening. We very much appreciate your company. Until next time, I've been Jake Cantor and the producer was Matt Hill. Goodbye. You've been listening to Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. 